Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and our guest today is Eleanor Rutter, Assistant Director of Public Health at Sheffield City Council and leader of the Council's Compassionate Sheffield Programme. You can find Eleanor on Twitter at Eleanor underscore Rutter. Eleanor, welcome. Hi, thanks Chris. Can we start by you telling us a little about the career journey that brought you to your current role? Yeah, it's 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 sort of quite comedic actually to to think through it. Um, given that I'm in such a kind of happy, content, joyful place now, and I can only look back on a path that was troubled and messy, and so I, I kind of think serendipity is probably the right word. It was a whole load of bad decisions, disasters that somehow have kind of brought me to a really the place I feel I belong professionally. Um, so starting out, Sheffield is my adopted home. I was from Derbyshire. I was a very bright child, not not a genius, but you know, a bright kiddie, but with no self-esteem. So every big life decision was based on you know, trying to, I suppose I wasn't aware of it then, but trying to get people to like me, trying to validate other people around me, trying to hide from the world, all those sorts of things. So a very natural, and joyful mathematician, I love nothing more than doing sums, I chose to go to medical school because everybody likes doctors, don't they? And and that wasn't the wrong thing to do. I, you know, I enjoyed medical school and I enjoyed being a clinical doctor, but actually, had I known myself at that point, just go and do maths, Eleanor, that was, I didn't do that. Fear of failure, again, made medical school, oh, I made very heavy weather of medical school, so a lot of close scrapes and failed exams and a lot of beer and watching of Richard and Judy, I remember that very clearly. I didn't enjoy medical school, I just made it very difficult, but I did get to the end and became a clinical doctor and actually really enjoyed junior doctor years, but again, never took any time to think what's right for me, where do I want to be? But bumped into a very impactful and very handsome young geriatrician who later became a husband. But of course, in that, you know, the same old pattern, validating somebody else, I decided I wanted to become a geriatrician. So I worked as a kind of middle grade doctor in hospitals and was waiting, I don't know how much you know about the medical training system, but was waiting for the next number, the sort of place on the local training scheme. I was, you know, the local candidate, I was a very strong candidate, and I think people expected me to get that job. And I didn't get that job. Completely unexpected. Somebody came from out of area, and I can remember his name now. Damn Ben Pearson. Um, so good was he. Um, the, the you know the panel were sort of you interviewed well. Would love to give you a job, but he was better. And I subsequently worked with him, and he was lovely and unhateable. But if anything, that that's the point when things really, really started to change. But without positive planning, it was a sort of quite a negative thing. I think had I got that job at that point, I think I would be a geriatrician now. But I don't think I'd be as happy as I am now. Essentially, at that point in time, I was pregnant. And so started to do those junior doctor years whilst also being pregnant. It nearly killed me. Pregnancy, I just needed to sleep for about 24 hours a day. And working as a middle grade doctor is a very, very scary place. And then essentially I had a, a complicated pregnancy so I had to leave work early and ended up having sort of 18 months off work 
And that's when the sort of negative thoughts started to set in, that that fear of blooming out, you know, when you're a middle grade doctor back, you know, we're talking 25, 30 years ago, it's very, you're very isolated. You've got a hospital of very sick people and you're kind of in charge. And the role back then was don't wait the consultant. That felt really scary. I'd started to feel that the praise you get in hospital medicine is a bit empty. You know, it really does happen like telly. Oh, thank you, you saved my father's life. And I was sort of thinking, well, I didn't really, did I? You know, I didn't... Because you just see the next patient is coming. I, I suppose I was starting to see systems and patterns. And then along with the fact that we were at the beginning of starting a family, I had a husband that was a hospital doctor. It just felt like two of these careers are not manageable. And then I just started asking around, what what could I do? I didn't, I didn't even know what public health was. But I did go into public health. And as soon as I started, really found like I'd felt I'd found my spiritual home. It sat right with me, it sat right with my politics, my view of the world. So it felt right, but yet again, made a very heavy weather of training. To be fair, I had another couple of kids and I was work part-time, but it was always a bit of a joke that a five-year training programme I took 12 years to do. I think at the time I had held the record for the person who was longest in training came out of the end of training and got my first consultant job not in Sheffield but in a in a local authority nearby and it was again it was a negative choice it was a safe place it was a safe job but it was a very medical model of public health it didn't sit right with me what sat worse with me at that point in time was they there was austerity they had to reduce five consultant posts to two I had that awful situation where I had to interview for my own job and I was in the middle of a very bad bout of depression at the time and could, couldn't string words together. I lost my job. And sort of a bad outcome with a safety net where I assumed I was going to get two years full pay, you know, I'd done 25 years frontline work, became something of a crisis when I re- realised I was going to get 10 weeks pay. 10 weeks pay, and at this point I was a single mother of three kids. Gorgeous geriatrician was no longer on the scene. Um, <laughs> 10 weeks pay, no job, three children was something of a crisis. And then my dream job came up and I got it. And that's where I am now. So the, you know, when I say dream job, it is, you know, it's a director of public health whose vision of public health I feel very comfortable with. I'm working in a team where I feel very safe with colleagues that I really enjoy working with. And in this city, which I absolutely love and where inequalities in health are quite palpable to me. I'm aware that I'm sort of very privileged. Sheffield is a brilliant place to me. And not everybody gets to experience it like that. So all of that, you know, I just just made a mess. But somehow I arrived in this place where I want to be and where I kind of feel like I belong. Well, that's quite a story. Thank you for sharing that. You're leading the Compassionate Sheffield programme for the city. What is the purpose of that? Going back to 2018, I was because of my kind of medical background, I was charged with, put, as I would say, putting meat on the bones of a couple of the ambitions in the health and wellbeing strategy. And the ninth ambition of nine was to ensure that everybody in Sheffield had a dignified death in a place of their choice. And I had to kind of go off and turn that into a strategy or a plan that was was deliverable. And at that point in time, I knew very little about the end of life and end of life care, really. But a lot of people in Sheffield knew a lot about that. So I just went out and met the people that were kind of active in that system and kept hearing this, this model described to me, compassionate communities and where people were caring for each other. 
and it sat really well with me in terms of what I'd seen in hospital medicine. You know, we've and I think we hear quite a lot of horror stories in the news over the last kind of ten or twenty years, and I'd kind of seen it. You know, people having deaths that you wouldn't choose in hospitals and possibly unnecessarily. You know, so it so it sat really well. It's based on the sort of academic work of Professor Alan Kelleher, who is, you know, it's a sort of response to the medicalization of death and dying in the modern world. And essentially recognises the fact that dying is a social and a spiritual process, primarily, which has medical implications. Of course it does, but it's not primarily a medical process. And that actually by medicalizing it, we have disempowered communities, they've lost their confidence, and we've hidden it away. So people fear death in a way that in the past, and we don't want to put the clock back because there was a lot that was wrong with the past, but there was also a lot that was done in communities, neighborhoods, families, that was really high quality care. And it was caring for families, vulnerable people in a in a way that met their needs more completely. So in the system, whether it's medical, social, whatever, we tend to kind of categorise people's needs, chop them up, the, you know, we talk about silos. Well, people don't exist in silos. And communities and neighbourhoods are the people and the places that are best placed to enable people to live their life right up to the last, you know, live the life they choose to value up to the end. So starting to understand that that was the proposal that we took to the health and well-being board in sheffield that we wanted to transform the end of life in sheffield yes we needed to do a lot of work on clinical pathways but also we wanted to take this community development approach by getting capacity and capability and confidence back into communities to support people in a way that they used to perhaps but bringing that into modern times i guess so that's a very, very long answer. The aim is, I, I, I kind of will say quite flippantly, I want Sheffield to be the best place in the world to die. What does the programme look like at present in practical terms? Then? Well, in terms of kind of staff, we are tiny, teeny-weeny. Uh, the six people, only one of those people is a full-time member of staff. The the people that do the doings, the nuts and bolts, the, the sort of operational stuff are, we've got two community development workers, Ruth and Mariana. So Ruth has a background, she's done loads of community empowerment work and has very uh, a very arty background and uses a lot of art skills to work with communities. Mariana is an experienced end of life doula. So we have those two working out in communities. Uh, we have what we call a comms officer, that's Lulu, but Lulu's particular skill is in telling stories with data, bringing all of this to life. The strategic leadership bit is me doing the population, public health type stuff, and then my friend, colleague, Sam Cherimatang, who is a palliative care consultant, so he's the sort of clinical lead. At the centre of that, and kind of last but by no means least, is Nick, a programme manager who I suppose I, I would politely describe as our glue. You know, he sticks us together. That's what makes us a team with a mission. Less politely, I'd kind of say, without Nick, we wouldn't get any shit done. I certainly wouldn't. Um, I'm very good at kind of talking and ideas and Nick tidies us all up and really kind of gets this looking like a coherent programme. So that's the team. We're funded in um, an ad hoc way and that feels quite unstable at times, but our main funders to date have been Public Health, Sheffield City Council, 
this what was the CCG now the ICB and St Luke's Hospice who also housed the team and that St Luke's have been a brilliant supporter in in the sense of it's easy to see the vision but actually having the faith in the people and putting the money where their mouth is St Luke's were, were there and have been brilliant and that's where the, a lot of the team actually sit of course compassion taking a compassionate approach in Sheffield isn't just about us six people the reason this works so well is that Sheffield is full of compassionate people so our team is you know 580,000 people out there so I'd, I'd be horrified if you got the impression that I'm saying we're doing compassion to Sheffield we're almost an enabler so we're you know adding capacity capability confidence knitting things together but there are people out there in communities have been doing this for years people are wanting it and we're just kind of nudging things along a little bit as and when it's needed and a lot of the work that we do is focused on what I'd call death literacy so when I talked before about the medicalization of death one of the things we've lost is just the ability to talk about death people find it very difficult to talk about difficult experiences and of course once we find that confidence to talk about our difficult experiences we start making connections and those are the connections that build that compassionate safety net when vulnerable members of the community need it so in terms of the work that we do there's kind of four really big strands so far we have done some work around advanced care planning which traditionally is quite a medical process you know ticking boxes to make sure your gp knows what you want as you approach death we've been doing that in yemeni pakistani and roma communities to make sure that all the material is culturally appropriate it's not just about translating a leaflet into a different language and of course doing the work is becomes the work in itself developing a lot of training to navigate the end of life and support other people to navigate the end of life and we've been working with voluntary sector organizations who don't traditionally work at the end of life but desperately want to find their confidence and kind of work in that space been doing a lot of death cafes but which are very much driven by the people that come to the the conversation driven by what they want to talk about but again it's finding their confidence helping them talk about what's important to them they're making connections and they go from that wanting to kind of reach out and and do more and the last little strand to our work which was I suppose it was a real opportunity although I absolutely accept the grimness of the situation but um, we led a lot of Sheffield's Covid memorial work and we did it in a way that we were trying to listen to the stories of of the whole of Sheffield and particularly the people who were uh, most seldom listened to and who were actually the people that were impacted the worst. So the Sheffield's Covid memorial work actually we got out into communities and we gathered stories and the stories are now saved on Sheffield's archive and all of that work fed into the central memorial so that's what we've done so far would it be fair to say that Atul Gawande's book Being Mortal has had a strong influence on your current thinking Yes, absolutely. And I, and I suppose when I read something that I relate to, that you know, that's when I kind of really take it in. I'm, I'm not a great work reader. I've got a bookshelf full of inspirational leadership books that are unopened or I've read the first chapter. But that particular book, you know, I just gulped it up like a damn brown novel. <laughs> I couldn't put it down. Um, and I suppose it just sat, it sat so right with everything that I'd seen. So it sort of straddled that bit that I'd seen in geriatrics 
which, you know, when I was a very junior doctor, we were in those shameful times where we under-treated elderly people. I remember clearly, really inspirational geriatrician I worked with. He was he was absolutely brilliant and I was so lucky to work with him. But I remember him justifying to us that he wasn't going to tell an elderly patient with cancer and lung metastases what her diagnosis was. He was just going to let her go home. I mean, it was, it's unimaginable, um, but but that's where we were. You know, you'd see just doctors making decisions about things that they'd come across. Oh, we won't investigate that. She's 94, you know, and it, it just felt, it didn't sit right with me. Now, when I came into public health, I was kind of working on understanding, working a lot about the need for hospital beds and understanding that if you go into a hospital bed when you don't need one, it it can cause harm and it's very expensive and there are better places to be. And I stand by that message, but I find I was starting to work in a part of the world that was getting a bit evangelical about everyone should be at home, that condition shouldn't be treated in hospital. And I think both sides of this was just sitting wrong with me. You know, we don't treat conditions, we work with people. (laughs) And I suppose the Atul Gwandi thing then, it was just a book that took my chaotic musings into, you know, really well-evidenced work that kind of made sense of all this, this mess that was going on in my head, that actually by making assumptions about people and pushing people down a path that, that we've chosen, we end up over-medicalising. And, and, and I think the bottom line was we strip away people's humanity. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose it gave me a confidence that this wasn't just Eleanor's ramblings. This was like, oh, this person had written this amazing book. I remember arriving at my job in Sheffield and buying the book, actually, for my current boss sort of said read that you know if you want to know what you've just recruited read that book because that's my mission and it's still there now and and actually when you you know thinking about this end of life agenda people live whole lives in communities and when they're in the system we categorize them and at our very worst we strip away humanity it's you know it's just a message that will resonate with me until I retire I think. And and what is your vision for the future of Compassionate Sheffield now? So I, I suppose it was interesting when I when I was kind of looking at this question. There's there's two parts to that. There's one, you know, recognising I'm a public servant and I uh, have a mandate from Sheffield's Health and Wellbeing Board, and I've been asked to lead this program, which is focused on the end of life. So the program that we have at the moment the the immediate vision is that we continue doing what we're doing I think we would expand a little bit but, but we're very much spreading skills and ways of working and our next stage is that we want to step into a, a model of compassionate neighbours which is very much what people did during the pandemic you know I'll pick up your, your prescription I'll go to the supermarket for you you know doing the sort of social support for vulnerable members of the community so my vision for the compassionate Sheffield program is that we kind of continue to do that and we arrive at a place where Sheffield's the best city in the world to die why not and and then there's the the sort of little bit at the back of my head which is sort of Eleanor's ambition not ambition but my vision my dream and I just think compassion is a word that runs through everything that we do and I think its potential is much much bigger than transforming the end of life in Sheffield Mm. so 
for example, at the moment, we're doing quite a lot of work in the, in the really, really big economic anchor organisations. Um, a lot of people are in conversation with Michael West to look at the benefits of compassionate leadership. Similarly, we've got Donna Hall coming to speak with us next week. And I think this idea of listening to what communities want to do for themselves the support that they want from the system again it's just a compassionate approach so i'm sort of looking at the city at the moment having a big conversation about our shared goals and i think there is a huge thing about compassion in that you know mm. we can be compassionate in schools our children need it uh, we can be compassionate in workplaces in businesses we can have a compassionate economy so that's my little dream, but also feet on the ground, the Health and Wellbeing Board have sent me off to do this thing and that's what I'm doing. I suppose the other thing that we've developed is some momentum and some visibility. So there are a lot of people that are grabbing hold of this compassionate Sheffield term. I've heard people apply it to, um, you know, City of Sanctuary. Do we have a compassionate approach to um, asylum seekers? Somebody mentioned it in relation to a cyclist's death on a road. Do we drive in a compassionate way and, and consider fellow and more vulnerable road users? I don't think it's just a silly pipe dream, this idea of Sheffield becoming a compassionate city in its entirety. There are a lot of people out there talking about it. Yeah, as an aside, I was at the Crucible last night speaking with Sheffield Hallam, helped to grow alumni about compassionate leadership. So is a thread, I think, that runs through Sheffield as a city. And uh, listeners might be interested to know that both Donna Hall and Michael West have appeared on this podcast before. So by all means, look up those episodes. You've consciously diverged from the FRO model, which is the basis of Compassionate Communities UK. Can you tell us why that is? We've not consciously diverged from anything. So right, going right back to the very beginning again, when we were having a conversation with the Health and Wellbeing Board, it, it was a brilliant conversation, mainly because our elected members had been living in their communities for such a long time. They knew their communities, they knew the history of Sheffield in a way that I didn't really. And we got some really, really clear messages from the Health and Wellbeing Board. They loved this idea. They wanted to go with the idea. They, they were very much, don't you tell us that Sheffield isn't compassionate. So they were absolutely clear that Sheffield is full of compassion. Sheffield is full of communities that care um, and want to care for each other. But the thing they were very, very clear about is we don't want doing to. We don't want a Sheffield version of Stockholm or New York or, or any other model. What we want you to do is go out and speak to Sheffield and see what they think a compassionate city, compassionate communities would look like. So it's not been, we've not been excluding any model. We've just, I mean, I think we've done, I feel quite proud. I think we've done asset-based community development in its purest sense. So, you know, we've picked up on where the passion is and where things are already happening. And that centers into the model that we're doing now. But that's not to suggest that anybody else's model is wrong. It's just that this was the approach that was right for Sheffield. Okay, a bit more about yourself then. What do you consider your greatest work-related achievement to date? Going back to the, you know, describing the way my kind of career has come about, one of the, the big motivators for me has always been that I was aware of my privilege. I was white, I was relatively middle class, I was quite bright, and yet why, why was I making life so difficult for myself? And I'm very, very aware of that privilege. 
and of course in, in public health we're constantly looking at the lives of people that don't have the privilege that, that I I was born with very aware of my own privilege I don't, I don't really see tangible things as achievements you know I was a, a privilege and I just had to walk along and kind of scoop up the opportunities that were given to me you know and in, in some ways studying medicine was easier for me than saying oh I'm stepping out of this I want to be a hairdresser or you know I want to do something I just followed the path that was kind of set out for me so so I don't see achievements in a way that many people do I've chuffed to bits about the momentum that we've gathered with the Compassionate Sheffield program and I, I feel really privileged to be working with amazing people so that's a good bit of work but in terms of an achievement, I think, you know, I have to get into when I actually had a choice, you know, a real tangible choice. You know, there's two or three in my career when I'm faced with a with a really difficult choice. You know, you take the easy path or you do the really, really difficult thing that's hard. Well, it's an interesting thing. I always used to torture myself when I was younger. With When I was young, you know, when I first learned about the Holocaust, actually, and, and families hiding Jewish people in their lofts and all that kind of thing, I always used to torture myself with, would I have the strength to do the right thing? And I'm just thankful that, you know, I've never been in that sort of situation. But then it's quite reassuring when you're, you find yourself in a difficult situation at work and you did do the right thing. And I, I can think of a particular time, and it's a truth, speaking truth to power thing, and I don't want to be overly specific because mm. the, you know the, there's there's kind of no need in this setting, but difficult situations always happen when your boss is on holiday. So I was very isolated. I was very frightened, very exposed, certain amount of kind of personal risk, and a lot of people that I was working alongside that I think just saw me as an irritant, which which is hard. It was far easier just to go okay, and I and I didn't. I just kept on saying this isn't the right thing to do we'll you know we'll find a solution but it's got to be the the right solution I think that really came alive to me kind of a, the, the following week I took a phone call from somebody and it, it was a, a, a somebody else that was on this team we were both sort of peripheral to this team and somebody had made a point of actually phoning me and the point they wanted to make was they were right at the end of a career and they were just going into retirement and they said throughout their whole career they could count on the fingers of one hand the number of times a, a really senior person had been faced with a really difficult decision and had done the right thing. And I, I could honestly, I could cry even now thinking about that phone call. It was so motivating because I think what I realized was what I'd done was a difficult thing and it was brave and I was stronger than I realized. But I think the point really is how motivating it is for other people. It wasn't just me stubbornly saying we're doing it this way, o other people, notice and and it really matters and if we have the courage to do the right thing of course that spreads you give other people the courage to do the right thing so yeah i think that's uh, that's got to be it i love that take on achievement thank you and would you be prepared to disclose your biggest mistake mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is a funny one i was thinking about as i i was thinking about this do I sound as if I'm going into an interview? Um, I've never made a mistake. I can't answer the question, Chris, not because I've never made a mistake, but I think because I've made so damn many and there is no one that just sits out there. I've, I've made a lot. They've been ugly. They've been, you know, impactful. And I suppose I've managed, you know, through therapy to kind of have a different take on life, where if life is a learning process, 
you almost don't use the language of mistakes. You know, I, I did a decision, I did a thing, I did a behaviour that I might do differently now, but if I learned from it, you've got to change your language of mistakes. Now that's not, you know, I have done some big ones, one or two that I, I wouldn't even want to share on a podcast. But I've learned from them. And I think one of the really, really big things I've learned is the power of sorry and actually meaning it. And I think once you understand sorry and mean it, I rather hate the word sorry. It gives me antibodies. If it's not meant, sorry without change is just manipulation and it offends me greatly. People are too good at saying, well, I'm sorry, but... But actually recognising that you did something wrong, acknowledging it, that that might have hurt somebody else or that had an impact and it, it was me that did that and expressing regret for that and thinking about what change you're going to make so it doesn't happen again, that's brilliant. And once you've found the ability to do that, it's so freeing because actually I can step out confidently and if I get things wrong, I'm able to say mm. I'm sorry. Okay, some quick five questions that I ask all my guests. Who is the person or the experience which has changed you or inspired you most? Mm. I want to, oh, I'd love to say, well, that conversation I had with Nelson Mandela. You did ask about the experience, that the experience that had changed me most, and I got to give a shout out for my therapy. And I, you know, I acknowledge I was privileged such that I could afford to do therapy. But that was not an easy process and I absolutely put myself heart and soul in it. I promised myself that I would be as honest with my therapist as I, I could be with myself and it's it was gruelling, absolutely gruelling, week in, week out. You know, sometimes you dread Thursdays, you'd end Thursdays exhausted because you've looked in a mirror at something very, very ugly and you've done that with somebody else. It's massively courageous and the product of that is I'm completely transformed I still find life a struggle, but I don't, I'm not driven by self-loathing, and that's that's sort of quite a dangerous place. I'm not driven by avoidance and and all those kinds of things. So so actually, I'm able to just accept myself, weaknesses and all. But it's transformative because going back to that career pathway, every decision I made was in response to self-loathing. So I want to make a shout out for people that have the courage to do their therapy. Therapy aside, what does your self-care regime look like? I wrote myself a note here. It says bad. Bad. <laughs> really bad. Yeah, no, it, not great. Not great. And I do understand the importance of it. It's bad. There's a time side to that and there's a head side to it. So in terms of time, I work full time and I've got three kids and they're all quite grown up but not at a stage where they're in independent of me so they take up a lot of my headspace and my emotional energy so what I tend to do is work, run a home and go to sleep. In terms of the headspace I've done many many years of caring and, and so my public health job I feel like I'm a sort of doctor for 580,000 people. So there's this sort of caring, 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 all the time caring, and I'm very good at caring externally. I'm very bad at caring for myself. And I understand the theory, you know, put your own oxygen on first. I get it intellectually. And then I can have this image of me on the plane, messing around and putting everybody else's oxygen on. And But I'm working on it. A friend colleague of mine is helping me a bit at the moment so it's really encouraged me to make to just to weave it into my life so I walk and I've recently moved house so I don't have to drive I just walk everywhere and my 
heart is lifted and I feel much fitter and stronger and better. I avoid alcohol, not not absolutely, but you know, I've got a long history of depression, which is a sort of day-to-day battle, and then bathing my brain in that sort of depressant drink is, you know, it's not a great thing, so I avoid alcohol. All the other things, eating well makes me feel better, but we eat too much takeaway. Meditating makes me feel better, but I don't find the time, so self-care is, it's a work in progress. Is there something you'd still like to achieve in work or in your leisure life? To go into public health, you have to get your head around what what your role is. And you go from clinical medicine where there's an immediate response. You're with a person, you inject a thing, they respond. You know, it's very, very immediate. To survive public health, you've got to get your head around what your role is. And I'm very, very comfortable with being a teeny weeny weeny little cog in a very big but important machine. So actually I'm totally, totally comfortable with the fact that I may never see the kind of fruit of my labours. So work-wise, I don't have an eye on achievement. I suppose it's a, it's a personal thing again that what I would love to do before retirement is get shot of the imposter syndrome. But my mother told me that she lost hers the day she retired, so... <laughs> I'm not holding out much hope, but yeah, I, I suppose I would just love to feel I'm 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 doing my thing and I'm okay. And yet again, you know, it's a it's a work in progress. What is the book, podcast, or video that you'd recommend to aspiring leaders? I'm going to cheat because I don't know if there is a book or a podcast or a video. It's a process that was massively impactful for me, and that was kind of doing the Belbin team preferences methodology. I was lucky enough to to do it directly in a workshop with the team I I worked in. I'm sure there are podcasts and books and all sorts of videos that, that you can kind of read about it, but the idea really is about not just you, but the team that you work in, understanding team behaviours, your work preferences, those kinds of things. But in a really really simplified way, it's about understanding, yes, your strengths, but understanding your weaknesses. And I think at the moment, in a very positive way, I'm very, very focused on weaknesses. I think focusing on strengths can become quite toxic and we, we exclude ourselves from each other's human space by just talking about how strong we all are, aren't we all amazing, aren't we all special? The thing that really ties us together is our weaknesses. So I think it brings us together as humans. But I think the real thing is that if we are to lead, and in public health, leadership means, you know, we don't accept the status quo. You're gonna have to stick your head above the parapet at some point. And to do that, you've got to feel safe. And you feel safe when you're working with a team that's got your back. And I experienced that many times throughout the pandemic, just this, Absolutely, it's like an emancipation, really, of realizing I'm free to do the best I can because my team's got me back, and they got me back because they know my weaknesses and I know theirs. Yeah, and it, and it's actually you know it's so it's really kind of nurturing, but brings out the best in everybody because that's what allows you to be brave. So yeah, if I had to encourage anybody to do anything, it would be not necessarily the Belbin roots, but really understand your weaknesses. Don't waste a huge amount of time trying to improve them because you're going to be squashing a square peg into a round hole. But do make sure that somebody's got that covered and then you're free from it. And finally, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? 
I accept the premise of your question, but there is a thing about actually, when I was 20, I wasn't in a place to accept advice and I made a million mistakes, but it was those that brought me here. So, you know, so there is quite a serious point about, you don't give 20 year olds advice, you just give them a safety net, just let them go, let them cock up and make sure they're welcome to come back. That said, I think my path would have been significantly easier had I recognised when I was 20 that you don't have to be perfect to be acceptable or even be lovable. Somebody might love you if you're not perfect. I wish I'd known that all those years ago. Uh, But also that thing about the most important person to accept you or love you is actually yourself craving the the acceptance of other people is quite a negative and dangerous place to go accept yourself and then you're freed up from all of that thanks Eleanor for sharing about compassionate Sheffield and sharing your own life journey with us today I found that incredibly fascinating I found it fascinating And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show chris at damflask-consulting.com. And this episode was recorded at Big Dog Studios, Sheffield, and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records.